It is good to be in my second home, my home away from home. Sherwood, I love you. I love your pastor. I love the word that God has brought to us tonight. Are you in agreement with that? It's a powerful word. I'm a little frightened, to be honest with you. But God gave me a word for tonight, several weeks ago. This has been, a la- the last two weeks for me has been challenging to prepare for messages from my, my church and to prepare my heart and this word for you. But I believe this is a word from the Lord. Heavenly Father, we ask, Lord, that you would fill us to receive the word of the Lord tonight and to respond in a way that would bring you glory and honor and praise. This is our act of worship. So, Lord, I pray that you would help us to see beyond what we see with the naked eye, to see the Lord, to see you in your glory, and to respond. In Jesus' name, we pray. Amen. The message that I bring you tonight from the Lord I call Walking in the Light. If you would open your Bibles to 1 John chapter 1, 1 John chapter 1, verses 5 through 10, and then we're going to go look somewhere else in just a moment. But I, uh, I wondered, even this morning, Michael, when I looked at my congregation in First Baptist North Mobile, I wondered what worship was like, what Sunday morning is like in heaven. Have you ever thought about that? Nobody wakes up on Sunday morning in heaven and says, what are we going to do today? (laughs) Nobody says, y'all want to go to church? I don't know. Do you feel like going to church? (laughs) Choir, do you think that anybody does that? You you think at any moment in heaven, don't you know they celebrate Sundays in heaven? That's the Lord's day. That's the day he rose again. You say, well, every day is Sunday in heaven. Well, sure it is. People see the Lord. 1 John 1, 5 says, this is the message we have heard from him and declared to you. God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. God is light. God is light. Without any mixture of darkness, God is light. If there is darkness, it is in me. It is in you. What have you experienced in your life that you regret? What have you experienced in your life that remains, even at this moment, hidden? What would you say tonight, I wish it had never happened? And if I could do it all over again, I'd do it all over again, differently. The first step in living in the light is to confess our sins. The first step to moving back from darkness into light, and here's something I've learned about us as Christians For those of us who are Christians, you have to be a believer to be revived. You can't revive uh, someone who's never been vibed. We're all about people being saved, and I'm going to say more about that in a moment, but tonight the Word of God is for believers to ask the question, if we're going to have revival, what must we do? Are we walking in the light or are we walking in darkness? Because I'm convinced I can walk in greater darkness now than I did when I was lost. And so tonight we ask the question, Lord, am I in the light? And what is it going to take 
I, I promise you, one of the elements that's missing and holding revival back is that we will not confess our sins. In some ways, we will admit mistakes, but we won't confess sins. We've become a generation of mistakers, not sinners. We're a generation that says, oh, I'm, I'm the first to admit I make mistakes. Oh, no, friend, you're a sinner. Do you realize it takes no blood to cover a mistake, but it takes the blood of our precious Savior to cover our sins? And when we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us of our sins. But when we have minimized our sin and made them mistakes, we prevent the grace of God from working in our lives. Hiding becomes natural following sin. We see that in Adam and Eve, don't we? Boys see that in their first glance at pornography. We hide it when, when we had no clue it even existed. And then when we see it, we step back in horror. We look around and, did anybody see what I just saw? It's true of every shameful act. It's true of every shameful deed. If sin and shame remain unconfessed, they divide us in two. They split us. And we begin at that moment to live, as it were, a double life. We maintain all of the liturgy, we maintain all of the songs in our service, we maintain all of our preaching and teaching and our going and doing, but deep down inside we will not confess what it is that holds us back. Today I find a strange theology working in my church, a strange theology in the larger southern church, and, and it's what I call the unconfessing church. We're not a confessing church. The sure sign that revival comes is when the people of God are the first to stand and say, I have sinned. I've sinned. I've sinned against the holy God. I've sinned in my attitude. I've sinned in my actions. I've sinned and I've hidden it. We are an unconfessing church. We not only do not confess our sins, we do not confess the grace and the blood of Jesus Christ to the lost. 95% of Southern evangelical Christians have never, ever told another person about the grace of Jesus Christ. 95% of us have never shared the gospel. We do not confess Christ. We do not confess our sins. And I think there's a linkage. Because if we were honest and confessed our brokenness, and confessed that we are undone, prideful and arrogant, if we were to get honest with God and confess those things, we would feel and experience the grace of God, the forgiveness of God, the cleansing of God, and you know what would happen? We'd want to tell somebody. And we would confess it to others. We'd confess, man, you've got to have this. You've got to know what it is to be forgiven. You've got to know what it is to be cleansed but we remain an unconfessing church. A young leader in my church, just a couple of Wednesday nights ago, as this sermon was beginning in my heart, he, he came up to me after a meeting of young leaders and he said, Pastor, I just got to be honest with you. I've been studying the book of James and James tells us in James 5.16 to confess our sins one to another and be cleansed. There's something about confessing our sins to each other. Did you know that scripture speaks more of confessing our sins to each other than to God? 
And he said, but I tried this in my Sunday school class at North Mobile. He said, and you would have thought I'd grown three heads. These other guys looked at me and he said, and the bad thing was, it, it wasn't my worst sin. But we don't, we lock up, we don't confess. We even teach our children, don't you go up out of that youth camp and confess anything that's going to shame us. And revival is hindered. Life-giving, life-changing, life-transforming revival in a church that would spread throughout a community is held back because we will not confess. Now, we do confess sin, but it's not ours. We confess sins, but they're not ours. Matter of fact, if we're really smart, we'll learn how to confess sins that we don't struggle with. And as we cluck our tongues and we wag our heads, we will criticize. We will point out other people's obvious sins, but not ours. And the heart of God is broken. You say, well, why do I need to confess? Because he knows for that very reason. For that very reason, honestly, we need to confess our sins. Remember Zacchaeus, the wee little man, Zacchaeus? You remember Zacchaeus in the sycamore tree, and the Lord said, come down today, Zacchaeus, I'm going to your house. He goes to his house, and Zacchaeus got saved. He got born again, and he got so full of God and so full of love that he, he couldn't contain. I always call Zacchaeus the Danny DeVito of Scripture. You know what I'm saying? I mean, he's short, he's stocky, he's running around his house so excited for the love of God that touched his life. What did he do? He said, I have ripped people off. I was despised by people. I stole their money. I'm a tax collector. I'm a Jewish sellout to the Romans. Nobody liked Zacchaeus. His friends were nefarious at best. And he says, I have ripped off so many people, I'm going to pay everybody back four times, four times what I've taken from them. And what did Jesus say? Oh, no, Zach, you don't have to confess that. No, Zach, you just pray to me. I'll forgive you. Did he say that? No. He said, salvation has come to this house today. He said, salvation has come. He affirmed the confession of our sins. I know this is a little nervous. If you're not getting nervous right now, you're not listening. This is leading somewhere. We must once again become the confessing church. A church that believes that walking in the light is better than stumbling in the darkness. And whatever we store in darkness, it grows. But it's not good. Unhealthy things grow in the darkness. Toxic things grow in the darkness. Guilt grows in darkness. Confession breaks the power of guilt and shame. Confession sets the captives free, exposing the power of the light, the photosynthesis of the glory of God upon our most naked sin is a way of seeing our lives transformed by the power of God. Jesus told us, he said, leave your gifts at the altar. In Matthew chapter 5, he said, go and be reconciled to your brother. Go confess your sin. Let me read that passage that freaked out those men in my Sunday school at North Mobile. In James 5, 16, he says, therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed in the power of a righteous man. The prayer, rather, of a righteous man is powerful and effective. 
You say, but Ed, you don't understand where this is going. You don't understand what you're asking me. You see, I didn't just cheat on a ninth grade math test. I've cheated on my mate. And I cannot even imagine at this point what it would mean to confess now because it would do no good. It would only cause greater harm. Friend, the cheating is what's caused the harm. The confessing, the Word of God says, is what causes the healing. You say, but they don't even know. I differ. I differ with you. I disagree with you. Listen to me. I know this is a painful, complicated issue. I know this is not an easy subject to handle, but I'm here to tell you, whatever the shameful deed it is, it is so powerful in your life, it has robbed you of the joy of the Lord. It's made you a spiritual curmudgeon. It makes you come to meetings to hear about revival, but you know you'll never know revival because you will not confess. And you have relegated yourself to a second-class status which God never once relegated you to. He said, come to me. Come to me just like you are. Come broken. Be honest. A woman recently confessed to me her adultery and all the pain and all the suffering it's caused in her life. And she said, but I don't think I can ever come back to this church. I said, please come back. We don't need one more Pharisee in this church. We don't need one more moralist in this church. What we need is somebody broken and put together by the love of God, cleansed, who's not trying to present themselves as good, but has been made good by the blood of Jesus Christ. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm a sinner in need of the gospel. This gospel that we preach is the gospel we must believe. We must believe it. You say, I, I don't want to hurt them anymore. Confession doesn't hurt. Concealing hurts. Your inside world will not be in order, and your outside world will not make sense. You'll not have victory. You'll not have the joy that God wants you to have. First John 2.10, whoever loves his brother lives in the light, and there is nothing in him to make him stumble. But when we walk in darkness... We continue to stumble and stumble and stumble. Why does revival wait? It may well be waiting for honest confession of our sins. Confession breaks the power of guilt and sin. And sometimes we settle again for talking about revival instead of initiating the trigger that unleashes revival. We aim, we aim, we aim, we aim, we aim, we aim. It's time to shoot. It's time to pull the trigger. And it begins with you and me. Now, do I want to walk in the light? That's the question I want to ask. That's the question that I've phrased so that you can ask yourself. Do I want to walk in the light? Let's look at the full... Five verses here, 1 John 1, 5 through 10. This is the message we have heard from him, and we declare to you, God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. If we claim that we have fellowship with him, yet walk in the darkness, we lie, and we don't live by the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. 
If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. If we claim that we have not sinned, we make Him out to be a liar. And His Word has no place in our lives. We are watching a generational shift in America. If you haven't felt it in your church, and I know you have a vibrant, dynamic youth ministry, but if you haven't felt it, you're strange. There's hardly a church in this country that has not felt what I'm about to describe to you, but we have watched the tipping point among evangelical Christians when it comes to our young people between 12 and 25 years old, 70% are falling away. We're seeing the lowest number of evangelized young people that we've ever seen in history. And there's all kinds of reasons for this. But not the least of which, I am convinced as they are, if they are, rejecting our religion, they're rejecting a stumbling in darkness. And in essence, when we refuse to get honest with each other, confessing our faults to each other, when we refuse to get honest and confess our need for the blood of Jesus Christ daily in our lives, we are making God out to be a liar. And who would want to follow a liar? Since God is light, there's no darkness in him. There's not even a shadow, the scripture says. We need to begin confessing our sins. John then calls us to be honest with one another. The real test of honesty before the Lord is my willingness to be honest with you. And your willingness to be honest with me. Being honest with one another. Speaking the truth in love. I've seen it in so many different ways. Some of you, because it went viral, some of you saw it on YouTube, but a church where people would just walk out with a cardboard testimony. And on one side they would say, I'm a thief. They turn over and they go, now I'm a tither. (laughs) You expected me to do that one, right? Or they had another one. One woman said, I stole from my company. I stole. Now I'm forgiven on the other side. I had an affair and God has healed me. I I have an unrighteous marriage and divorce and, and now God has straightened all that mess out and One after another after, it doesn't matter. You don't, listen, there's all kinds of ways, but what's missing is that there's just a lack of honesty about ourselves. And then church has become something God never intended it to be. It's become a weekly convention of moralists who get wonderful platitudes and powerful messages on how they can be more moral. And deep down inside of every human being, there is an innate desire to want to earn salvation. So we prove week after week that we are good. Folks, I'm telling you, only, only the church is to be made up of people who confess freely we are not good. We don't deserve the love of Jesus Christ. We don't deserve, only the hell's angels are the only other group that you have to confess how bad you are before you can join. And God has called us to confess. Can I remind you what this verse tells us? There is nothing you and I have done, will do, or can do that the blood of Jesus Christ cannot purify us from. 
And you say, oh, well, preacher, you shouldn't talk like that because then people are just going to go out and they're going to live as they please. Friend, that's what we're doing. But when Jesus Christ touches you by his grace, I promise you, you will want to live to please him. We do get in a mess. We do stumble. We are broken. We are incomplete. We are addicted. We are messed up. But the blood of Jesus Christ purifies us from all unrighteousness. And rather than excusing sin, being honest and confronting the truth, walking in the light does just the opposite. It makes us want to be like him. It makes us love people like he does. The reason we've become an unconfessing church to a lost and dying world and the reason they will die and split hell wide open is because the church will not confess. I want us to quickly go to a very familiar passage of Scripture. It's found in Isaiah chapter 6. Now, you almost can tell where I'm going to go with this, but I want you to see, I want you to see the question, do I want to walk in the light? The, the next question I want to answer is, how do I walk in the light? Because God shows us. By the way, David said in Psalms 32.9, do not live like, do not be like the horse or the mule, which has no understanding, but must be controlled by bit and bridle, or they will not come to you. What the Lord is saying in that is an invitation. Through David, he said, listen, come to me. Come to me willingly. Don't come because you got caught. Don't come to me because you've been exposed. Don't come to me because somebody put a bit and a bridle in your mouth, but come to me seeking me, and you will ever surely find me. And you will find his cleansing love. How do I walk in the light? Verse 1, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord seated on his throne, high and exalted, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Isaiah did not find himself in a gutter of sin. And I would dare say most of us today do not find ourselves in some reprehensible situation although some may. Isaiah finds himself in church. He finds himself doing what Isaiah faithfully did week after week. He would sing in the choir, let's say, or he would go and hear the word, or, or he would preach the word. But he was here. But something happened to Isaiah that we only pray, Mark, would happen to every one of us, and that is that this meeting would be transformed. It, not just to a regular gathering time where the church is the church together, but that we experience the Lord, that we see him high and lifted up, that we see the train of his robe fills the temple. He fills our life. His glory spreads throughout the world. God meets his people. And this was an unusual time, and it tells us a lot. Look at verse 1. He says, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord. This was a pivotal moment in their life. For 60 years, the children of Israel had been blessed under the leadership of Uzziah. And I think your pastor talked about him this morning. He was faithful until he wasn't. He was faithful until he was prosperous. And in his blessing and in his prosperity, he changed. Something inside of him changed. He pretty soon started thinking, I have rights. I have certain expectations of how I will be treated and what I can do and when I can do it. And his privileges filled him with arrogance. And the Bible says that God struck him with leprosy. I've said this here before, but leprosy is not a flesh-eating disease. Leprosy is a disease of the central nervous system. It literally renders you incapable of feeling pain, which is a, 
an amazing illustration of pride. Pride will keep you from feeling another person's pain. Not Jesus. Jesus would see a crowd of people and he would be overwhelmed with splontna, a moving of his lower intestines, a gut-wrenching reality of what they were living through and living with. And he had compassion on them. But when you're prideful, you don't see others. Uzziah could only see what he wanted at the moment, and he was smitten with leprosy. It was a terrible time. It meant that an epic age was ending of all the goodness, and it wasn't ending well. It was ending badly. And the people of God were ashamed of all that had taken place, and here in this brokenness, I don't know what brings you here tonight. I don't know what brings you here to sing when there's maybe not even a song in your heart in the choir. I don't know what's here in your heart, but there's a, maybe a change in your life, something you didn't ask for, something that was thrust upon you. But you're here, and what a moment for this worship service to be transformed into something of seeing God and seeing Him in His glory. In the year that King Uzziah died, he said, I saw The Lord change forces us in those moments of great transition. They force us to see what is unchanging, to turn from saying, I trust my pastor and I trust my church and I trust my worship. I love it. It meets my needs. To say, I'm trusting something more. I'm trusting something more. The Sunday after Ted Haggart famously fell from grace into a very public sin, and a very shameful reality, the worship pastor of his church stood up and he said, I know most of you. Most of you wish that we could go back to last Sunday before any of us knew these revelations. He said, but today is a better day because the light has come on. Walk in the light as he is in the light. Even the most shameful things, we must realize when God begins to convict us of sin, of unforgiveness, when God begins to deal with us at the basis of our pride and our arrogance, when God begins to deal with secret sin in our life, it isn't to shame us, it isn't to embarrass us, it is to expose the reality of His grace, that He's never stopped loving us, and that the future will be better. The lost world knows we're messed up, they're waiting for us to admit it. Verse 2, and above him, when he saw the Lord, above him were seraphs, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, and with two they were flying. This word seraph is a very difficult word to translate in the Hebrew, but the best thing we can find out is that in its verb form it means to be flamed and flaming. They are the flaming ones. Literally, they look like fire with wings. Incredible creatures. Holy creatures, creatures that have never sinned, and yet look what they do. With two wings they fly, with two they cover their face. Why? Because they cannot behold the majesty of God, the holiness of God. With two they covered their feet, and they flew. They don't cover their ears so they can still hear the command of the Lord. But these seraphs with these wings, and they're flying back and forth. And what are they saying? Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. They're talking to each other as they fly around the throne of God serving the Lord. Folks, when's the last time you've had a worship experience where you see this? Where you see God as he really is. Not God heaping more expectations upon your inability 
but God revealing his glory, his power, and all of these created creatures who knew no sin, who resisted the temptation to go with the enemy, the devil, these holy beings still are covering themselves because of the utter holiness of our God, the utter otherness of our God. He has no competition. Do not think of our God like Darwin's theory of evolution, that he's on a higher rung here. He's not, even compared to the angels, our God is in a different category. He is holy God. He is holy God. James 4, 6 says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. God is so holy, he's dangerous. I must tell you what Ray Ortland has said. I heard him say it with my own ears. He said, I've never had a thought or preached a sermon worthy of God. You see, here's the problem, folks. We can go to church and not see the Lord. We can have a quiet time and not see the Lord. We can sing a cantata and not sing, see the Lord. We can sing hymns and songs, glorious songs like we've heard tonight, and not see him. John 12, 41 said that Isaiah saw the glory of Jesus Christ. That's an amazing thought. Look at verse 3 of Isaiah 6. And they were calling to one another, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, and the whole earth is full of his glory. This is not holy plus, holy plus, holy. It's exponential, infinite times, infinite times, infinite. It grows. The sound grows. The the power grows. The only time an adjective is repeated three times in the Old Testament is right here. God's holiness is not merely a technique for your sin management and mine. His holiness is to reveal his utter otherness to us. And in his presence, none of us have a right or a claim to be here. He is holy. He is holy. He is holy. I don't know about you, but the world that I live in and the world that I move in and the world that I see on my television screen and read in my papers, and it's tempting to think that the whole earth is full of sin, isn't it? Isn't it? But it isn't. It's full of his glory. It's full of the glory of the Lord. Jesus told us that even when we look into the face of an enemy, we see a dim, broken, fractured reflection of the glory of God. Even our enemy is made in the image of God, broken as he is. And the Bible commands us to love that God made him or her. And that God is revealing himself in his glorious way in the stars tonight as you go home. In the morning when the sun rises, his glory fills the earth. The perspective that we gain from worshiping our God is overwhelming. We need to see the Lord. We need to see the Lord. Revival is seeing the Lord as he is. We need to see him. Isaiah 6, 4 says, In the sound of the voices, at the sound of their voices, the doorpost and the threshold shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. I was in Oklahoma City in April 
1994, I was at the Wally Post Airport. I just landed with with a, a man who built this building and built our building at our church and had some other people with us, and we got a rental car, and we got into that rental car when, bam, six miles away, downtown Oklahoma City, a bomb went off at the Arthur P. Murrow building, and we felt it. It reverberated. It shook the ground underneath us. We jumped out of the car. Was that an earthquake? Was that a sonic blast? Was it a boom? What was it? And no sooner did we ask those questions, we could see a plume of smoke over downtown, and we knew. We knew that something very bad had happened. But folks, when, when Isaiah sees the Lord, and just the mentioning of his holiness causes the doorpost of this incredible place to shake, and the smoke would rise. Isaiah 6, 5, Isaiah, now this is where you and I come in. Look what he says, woe is me, I cried, I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, living among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Note that Isaiah's response to seeing God for who he is leads him to the first confession Isaiah makes in the whole book. The first time he speaks, he says, woe unto me. Isaiah, the prophet, had to deliver woes to the people of Israel, but now he woes himself. Isaiah is an insider. Listen to this. He is an aristocrat. He is of the royal family. He is a sophisticated man. He is righteous. He's a good man. And upon seeing God as he is, the Lord Jesus exalted and glorified, he fell on his face You know, sometimes falling to your knees is critical, but sometimes falling on your face is the only, only posture. God is holy and real. Isaiah said, I am ruined. I am undone. In a moment, in an instant of seeing the Lord, Isaiah said, I'm not nearly what I ought to be. I'm not nearly where I ought to be. I am so far from the living God. Oh, God. He is no better than anybody. He is no better than anyone else. His worship, even his worship, needs forgiveness. During the last presidential administration, the vice president had an aide who was convicted of a crime. Before that president left office, he pardoned him. His name was Scooter Libby, and his crime, supposedly, was that he outed a CIA agent. He outed them. He released the name of Valerie Plain to the world. And top secret business of the CIA, that's the worst thing you can do to a CIA agent, is you can out them. Isaiah here is outing himself. He's confessing, I'm undone. I'm I'm unclean. I'm unfit. That's the confession that God waits for his church to make in order to pour out his revival. Folks, we've got to stop playing games about revival. We've got to stop saying we want to see revival because revival can become an entertainment for us if we're not willing to out ourselves. 
if we're not willing to confess. Conviction grips Isaiah. He stopped caring what other people thought. He stopped caring about what they would say at the Cracker Barrel tomorrow morning. He stopped caring about anything except the holy God he stood before. Look at verse 6 and 7. Then one of the seraphs, look at this, one of the seraphs flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from the altar, and with it he touched my mouth and said, See, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away, and your sin is atoned for. Why did the seraph, this flaming one, have to use tongs to grab this coal? He's already on fire. It's not going to burn his fingers. He does it out of utter reverence for what that coal represents. You see, the temple that Isaiah went to worship in, like the church that you're in, the temple, though, was designed to be a mirror image of what was in heaven. It was a man-made replica of what was actually going on in the presence of the Lord. That's why we have a cross here, because the center at at this temple was a place of altar of sacrifice, The coal that was taken from that altar with a tongue by this holy flaming angel is the coal, red, fiery coal of the blood of Jesus Christ, which is the ultimate sacrifice for our sins. He flew to him instantly, immediately, like a jet engine zooming down on its prey. He flew to Isaiah who just confessed his sin, and he touched him, and he declared that his sin has been a Quit it. It has been paid for. It is over. You're no longer guilty, but you have been made righteous and cleansed in this moment. It isn't just feeling sad. It's getting set free. What a powerful image this is. By the way, this was not out of the compassion and the mercy of the seraph. This is the compassion and the mercy of our God. I promise you by the authority of this Bible that the moment you and I confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You have already been positionally cleansed. When we confess our sins, we enter into the freedom and the joy of being cleansed before our God. We glorify the Lord when we bring our sin to him. He glorifies himself when he covers and cleanses us of our sin. Look at verse 8. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? And I said, Here am I, send me. This is very significant. Don't miss this. I'm almost done. How does Isaiah change through this whole worship experience? The gospel got crammed deep down into his heart, and the Holy Spirit of God set it on fire. There will be no revival without the gospel. The gospel is critical to revival, and revival is critical to the gospel. When 95% of Southern evangelicals have never witnessed to another person, we are the unconfessing church. But when God visits us and we see his glory, you will not be able to shut us up. The sign of revival as we've seen throughout history is that millions upon millions 
will come into God's kingdom through the gospel. Verse 8 says, And whom shall I send and who will go for us? Here's a man who just a moment ago said, I am unclean, I am undone, I am unfit, I'm not finished, I'm not worthy. And he is so overwhelmed by the gospel that God gave to him that he says, here am I, send me, send me. If you have any spiritual experience that doesn't make you more passionate for the gospel, you have every reason to question that spiritual experience. Revival is not just a deeper inward movement. It is a transformational act of God's grace that causes us to care like Jesus cares for others. The noted psychiatrist Paul Tournier said, a vague feeling of guilt kills the personality, but the conviction of sin gives life to the personality. Tonight we need to stop being mistakers. And we need to confess we're sinners in the hands of a mighty, gracious, holy God. And we need to come clean. Holiness is an act of God's grace. It is the gospel I need today. Holiness is not a sin management program where you leave feeling guilty from church and saying, I'm going to do better. Holiness is who God is. And we enter into his presence. He's dangerous to your agenda. And Michael is right. God breaks a man. He breaks a woman. He crushes us so that he can transform us and use us for his glory. When's the last time you wept? For your sin or for souls. God's blessing is waiting for our confession. Are you willing to step into the light? Or will this message cause you to flee into the darkness? I don't think there's any other choice. It's one or the other. Heads bowed and eyes closed. I, I want to be clear but more importantly, I want the Lord, and I trust the Lord has been stirring all day. But even long before this day ever became this day, God has been stirring. There's sometimes going to your knees or going to my knees is very appropriate. There's sometimes laying out flat before God is appropriate. Sometimes we need to go to a brother or a sister, maybe even in this very room, and confess our sins to each other. Maybe to one we have offended or who has offended us. Maybe to go to someone and say, I trust you, but I need to confess a sin in my life and I need victory over that. In the ninth grade, if you cheated on a math test and you went and confessed that to your teacher, it had an amazing power to keep you from doing that again. The power over sin is to confess it.
I'm not suggesting you just jump up and yell it out, but I'm telling you, deal with it. Deal with it. And I believe we are in the holy presence of our God. This altar is open. I want to pray. And I want to extend this invitation. I extend this invitation to all of us to come clean with the Lord. Lord Jesus, we ask you tonight as you have been moving and stirring in our hearts. Lord, I ask you to help us to look up and to see beyond Mark and the choir, beyond the preachers, to see that this is but a reflection of a night of worship in heaven where the Lord Jesus is seated upon his throne and his train of his robe fills this temple and his glory is everywhere. And the seraphs, the flaming ones, are flying. Loved ones that we have said goodbye to are there in utter worship. We are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses. And they all know that what we do in these moments make or break us. And decisions are made on an individual level now that will either hinder or release the power of God in revival. We need you, Lord. Give us the courage, give us the grace, give us the strength to respond and to confess you, to confess to you our sin and to tell someone else that we would be healed and set free when Isaiah said this he said it out loud and once he said it everyone knew it and he was a righteous man oh God help us in Jesus name would you stand In Jesus' name, would you come? In Jesus' name, would you assume the posture that is necessary? Find a place to lay out. Find a place to bow. Find a place to come. Find someone who would pray with you. Confess. Be set free. Cleansed. Do business with God. No church needs one more Pharisee. No church needs one more person who is a good, moral person. We need people redeemed, cleansed by the blood of the Lamb. Lord, help us. Help us, Lord. As Mark leads, just however the Spirit of God would lead him, you come. You respond to what God has said.